All right, Psalm chapter one, or as Laura mentioned last week, book one, chapter one of the Psalms, the law of the Lord, the reflection of Torah. So if you have your Bibles uh, with you, either here or on your phone, I'll invite you to get those out and turn to Psalm chapter one. Uh, and also listening at any one of our sites or online later, I'd invite you to do the same thing. We're going we're gonna to do a deep dive into a little bit into Psalm chapter one, but also um, and particularly Psalm chapter 51. So Psalm chapter one and Psalm chapter 51, which are just bangers. Psalm chapter one, book one. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in Torah in the law of the Lord, which revives the soul, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit in each and every season. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all that they do, but not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered blown around by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly for the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to what? Destruction. And then 50 chapters later, what on earth has happened? What on earth has happened? Make note of what you notice as we go along here. We've started with the beginning of Torah, which is the beginning of wisdom. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We meditate on it. We meditate on it day and night. And then 50 chapters later, Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. It does not relent. Against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. I have done what is evil and wicked in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother even conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, from birth, teaching me the culmination of wisdom, even there. And so purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Please don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your spirit from me. Instead, restore, restore, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. And then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for killing, for shedding blood, O God, who saves me. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice instead that you desire is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Uh, when I was 14, I started taking guitar lessons. Um, 
despite being a kid who grew up like always listening to and loving like hip hop and rap, uh, I wanted to learn guitar because a friend of mine like played really well and it was just something that I always admired. And there's something about like some like guitar rock ballads that it doesn't matter the genre of music, it just like captures you, right? Because like whether it's rock or hip hop or country, who listens to country anyway? But there's like two or three, is a few of us, there's two or three songs that I'm sure all of us know by heart or if it comes on the radio, if you hear like one note or one line or one chord, you're like, I know this jam. And not only do you know this jam, but you know like the first time you heard it or the, the, the memories that were like invoked the first time you saw it. And typically they are songs that are, they have a, a put your hand up if you've heard this terminology before, a major minor lift. Have you heard this before? A major minor lift. Anybody know what that is? So in musical theory, a major minor lift is it starts with a major chord and then dips into the, the, the minor melodic and then, and then comes through with more of a passive resolve. So it's not just like happy clappy down in the dark and then back up to happy clappy. It's, it's happy, it's engaging thoughtful lyrics and chord structure, then down into like a minor chord and then back up to a non-resolved passive major. See the difference there? Now there's a few songs that have always done this for me. Not that I love them, but I think uh, they, they're, they're rich in, in meaning in their lyrical composition. And they have that hook, that major minor hook that just grabs us. Okay, let's see if you recognize these and, and sing along. Sing along here or whether you're watching online, uh, we can hear you, so can baby Jesus. So make sure that you sing out loud. Okay, how about this one? I'll play it a couple times. Yeah, the Beatles, should we sing it? Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. That's all I know. Okay, what about this one? What about this one? A little bit more. Okay, that's enough, that's enough. There's still a sermon to be had. You gotta do the rock face too. Anybody yet? She's just a small town girl. That's enough. Okay, slowing it down, slowing it down. What about this? Yeah, some nodding along. Yeah, everybody hurts. Think you've had too much of this life. Then hold on, here we go. Down to the minor, cause everybody hurts. Okay, we got it, we got it. I think this is why Psalm 51 tends to be so seared into our consciousness. Who has read Psalm 51 before? Or as we read through, you're like, oh yeah, I I remember this. I remember the church service that I heard it in. I remember the sermon that I heard. Or I remember being deeply convicted when I read it on my own. Psalm 51 has that power. It's a hymn. So if you take a look in your Bibles, if you have a physical Bible, or even if you're on version, um, watching online at all of our sites as well, take a look at what the narrator, the psalmist says right at the beginning. Put your hand up if you see in your Bibles, in your physical Bibles or on your phone, is there a header there? Yeah, shout it out loud, what does it say? In my Bible, it says, for the choir director. Anybody have that? 
Yeah, for the choir director, a psalm of who? Regarding the time that what happened? Nathan the prophet came to him after David, David had done what? Committed adultery and harmed Bathsheba. So this is what Psalm 51 is for, for many of us. And it's been a tradition of the church for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Think about that. In 2023, we are sitting here in a studio or sitting here at one of our sites and we're reading an ancient psalm, a poem reflecting pain and loss, but also the restoration of God that is always for his people, despite the circumstances, a major, a minor, and a lift, a major, a minor, and a lift. Admittedly, Psalm 51 is a difficult one for us to read, if we're honest with ourselves, right? It's a difficult one to be like, like, have you ever found yourself in a conversation with a brother or sister or somebody as part of your spiritual family or church, or even this morning, uh, you know, you're talking about the Bible passages that you read. Have you ever said, oh, Psalm 51, like that time where um, David harmed and assaulted and victimized Bathsheba and then, you know, killed Uriah. It's just really speaking to my heart. Like that is not, not a regular term of endearment or engagement and yet, for thousands and thousands of years, the church, the communal confessional fellowship has rallied around this psalm in particular for those reasons. It's a psalm of pain. It's a psalm of confession. It's a psalm of admission of sin and harm. And it's so familiar and approachable. So by show of hands, have you ever been in pain? By show of hands, have you ever done anything that was wrong in your, in your journey or your relationship with God? Yeah. By show of hands, have you ever done something that was wrong or harmed a brother or sister or friend or colleague? Yes. So as we read Psalm 51, as we do a deep dive into what this text teaches us about wisdom, know that you, that we, that the collective body of Christ gathered here today, we are in good company. This is a psalm that is approachable and is in the, the, the canon of scripture for a reason. I would contend that in Psalm 1 and in 51, did you notice the, the, the stark contrast uh, of how he started that reading? Blessed is he who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. And cursed is he who, like, blessed he who's, who does not make fellowship with who? Mockers and sinners. And then the first line of Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. I have done what is wicked, what is unjust, what is unrighteous, oh, unrighteous um, in, in your heart and in your mind. I would contend that we're seeing the summary of wisdom literature, of the wisdom of God and the wisdom, the horizontal, vertical relationship that we have with God and the horizontal relationship that we had, or that we have with each other in, these, in this uh, action-packed, deep and dark psalm, the genesis of wisdom in the, in the divine connection that God is actually with us for the journey the exodus of sin and death, that despite being a privileged, powerful person, a person who's reached the apex of all theology and privilege in terms of the eyes and landscape of God, King David is still prone to sin and death and the desperate nature 
of humanity, of what it means to live in a broken world as broken people with broken hearts that are loved still by the divine. So welcome to part two of our wisdom series, where over the next number of weeks, uh, Laura did, uh, led us so well. And I learned so much uh, from her last week of like how the books, wasn't that interesting, are even broken up, 17 and then five and then 17. And then even those five, like, what are we looking at? What is the, um, what's the compilation of the Psalms trying to teach us? That this is the poetic Torah. This is poetic law in common language that is now accessible. That God does not just care necessarily about what is written on tablets but he cares what's written on our hearts. And the Psalms give that poetic language um, to us, uh, to the church, uh, and to our history with God. And so today, uh, next week, we're going to jump into Proverbs. And then a few weeks after that, we're going to dive into Ecclesiastes. Everything is meaningless. That's the commercial uh, for that. But today, we want to jump into Psalm 51. Now, does anybody know what the word Psalms means? Have you heard this before? Exactly right. It's, it's so fascinating. Like even when I was like, um, I was doing some research this week and I was like, I don't think I totally know the breadth and depth of like what this word means. I thought it was like really rich and deep and it is like it, it exists in the body of wisdom, writing and literature, but it just literally means to strike a chord, to twang a guitar. That's what it means, that, that it was so seared in the consciousness of the Israelite people to, to remember and to curate these, these writings. Remember, these are people who did not have, like think about the, the treasure that we hold in our hands about an ancient text that's codified and collected so that we can read it in accessible English translation. Not the case in ancient Israel or even in the New Testament. This is a gift, is a treasure and was not the case for ancient Israelites. And so how best to learn and memorize a song than to write it, uh, 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 a scriptural teaching, than to write it in poetic form than to write it in prose or to curate it through a song. And so when you hear the word Psalms, it literally is a chicha being blung, 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 right? And then the word Psalm is actually derivative of uh, telehim, which means a song of praise or, or a twang. Uh, where we get the word Psalm is from uh, psalmos or um, uh Mismor, which means um, accompaniment. Like it's a liturgy and practice of the ancient church to sing along, to pray, to read through poems and to reflect our own hearts and journeys with God as we hear these rhythms, as we experience these liturgies. And this is exactly what Psalm 51 is. It is a song to be played and accompanied by a guitar or a stringed instrument. Think about how crazy that is. Think about how crazy that is. That you have the devastating story of King David and his fall accompanied with music. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? Like it, it, it's so vulnerable and it just shows the heart of the ancient Israelites. They're like, well, how, like, why, why, where does ego make its place. Like we already see the devastating effect of just like trying to hide because what happens when sin goes in secret, it grows. Sin in secret grows. And so I think there's much to learn for us here. Okay. So let's jump into it. What is it that we're reading and who is reflecting on what here? Psalm 51 is pointing back at a story um, that happened uh, 
quite a while back. And so there's three basically scholarly positions on when we read Psalm 51, there's three options. Number one, it's a Psalm of David, literally a journal entry written by David to remember, to confess and to set the example for the ancient Israelites of like somebody who has risen up, who has fallen down deep, but also the the capture, the, 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 the catching of God in this whole process. Number two is this is likely post-exilic. So it might not be written by David. It's written by the ancient Israelites post-exile, even post-exile in Babylon to reflect back on like, holy smokes, how did we get here? How did we get here? Looking back on how things started in Genesis, how things started to pull apart in Exodus, how things rose and fell on the shoulders of King David, and then a reminder through song and poetry and prose of we don't want to be here again. We don't want to be here again. And then the third option, which is probably where I would lean, is it's a bit of a mixture of both. We're actually reading probably some version of an ancient record of David that was recorded either by a scribe or somebody who heard and wrote it down, but then was curated, cared for and protected and recorded in human history by the community, by a confessional community that said, this is too important to forget. We do not want to repeat the harm in the history of our past. And so what is this history? Well, we read in, in uh, 2 Samuel, um, basically chapters 8 through 16. Uh, we're not going to go there. I'll just give a quick flyby. But it's, I mean, it's worth reading and it's also sucks to read. Like it's just such a difficult section of scripture to read. And so if you read um, 2 Samuel, I believe we start in uh, chapter 12, it is. We read that in the spring, when most kings were going to war alongside of their soldiers, King David did what? Stayed back. And after a nap, you can't make this up. After a nap, he got up and walked along the top of his palace in Jerusalem. Does this seem like a good and godly disposition? You can answer, no. Like right away in Second Samuel, the, the author, uh, the chronicler who's writing this down is, is showing the, the repeat behavior of David that he likely learned from who? Saul. Just a few chapters earlier, we have a devastatingly violent man uh, and that God says, I'm going to pull the anointing off of Saul and put it on you, David, and your lineage, your kingship, your dynasty will last provided you obey and walk in righteousness your branch will never end. And yet we hear that when most kings are accompanying their soldiers out to war, King David post nap is stayed behind and is walking along the rooftop of his palace. And he sees who bathing Bathsheba. Okay. So hold on here. This is creepy. Like I grew up in a Christian tradition. That's like, Oh, Oh, that's hussy Bathsheba, like how dare she? This is not what we're reading here. I would contend that Bathsheba is engaging in mitzvot. So she's cleansing herself, right? It's not just a sultry flirty bath on the top because hey, the king is home. No, this is a, a, a private moment for her and God and David, the king of Israel absolutely takes advantage. Oh, if you're hearing this for the first time and as an Israelite kid or teen or adult, you're like, what? How on earth did we get here? How on earth is that possible? And then it continues to get worse. So David calls for Bathsheba. It's not like he, he sends her a text or an email or a nicely like scented flower down to her front door. No, he goes and takes her. Women were a commodity in this culture. And so David goes and sends for Bathsheba, brings her back and then impregnates her. 
So he victimizes her and harms her. She would not have had a choice. And as the story goes, she gets what? Pregnant. Pregnant. Come on, what is happening in this story? Now you would think, okay, that's enough. This is a horror story. Like, let's wrap it up here. Nope. Guess what else happens? He finds out that she's pregnant and he says, shoot, um, an employee of mine, Uriah, the Hittite, is off uh, at war. Bring him back. Bring him back. Bring him back. Let me talk to him and convince him that this is like his kid. In fact, why don't we have a couple wobbly pops? And that way he'll be convinced of his error. And guess who is the moral upstanding person here? Uriah the Hittite says, no, I'm not even going to sleep in my house. I'm going to sleep on the front mat outside my door because my people, my brothers and sisters are at war. That's where I belong. He does get drunk, uh, but then heads back to battle. And now David is like, oh, okay, it's all coming undone. It's all coming undone. And you would think that that's where this brutal story ends, right? No, it gets worse. What is happening? Blessed is he who makes company with the righteous and does not engage with the wicked or sit in the company of mockers and scoffers. Blessed is he who takes the law of the Lord in his heart and meditates on it day and night. What are you doing, David? What on earth is happening in your heart, mind, and soul that you would take this many steps towards sin and devastation of fracturing, of, of dividing, of hurting a woman, a wife, an employee, a nation, a relationship with God? And what happens? He puts Uriah where? On the front line of battle. And what happens to Uriah? He's killed. Um, Are there any 10 commandments that warn against any of this behavior? Yes. Yes. And what is the law of the Lord? It's the 10 commandments at, at a base level. So think about the the, the juxtaposition, what the psalmist is trying to get us towards going from Psalm chapter one and then to Psalm chapter 51. We have somebody who has done what is awful, awful in the eyes of the Lord, awful in the eyes of a family and a coworker and a nation, awful in his own heart and mind. He knows what is up. And so what is the first thing? Uh, well, it's interesting what happens. So, uh, it, David doesn't confess to anything. Do you notice this? What is the, what, what, what corrects his behavior? Nathan comes to him and tells him a parable, a story, a poem, a prose, a psalm, surprise, surprise, and, and uh, talks about this, this unjust story. And then David is furious and says, this man must die. And then I imagine Nathan leaning in and being like, this man is you. This man is you. You are the one who has lived unjustly. You are the one who has done what is wrong and sinful and anti-Torah in the eyes of God. Now, what do you notice? And this is where we're seeing a little, that's the minor, obviously. And this is where we see the the major lift a little bit. I, I do wish that David would have like come clean and confess right out the gate. He doesn't, but he does admit. Do you notice that he does not spin, that he does not PR that he does not create like, well, it's nuanced. I mean, Bathsheba was wearing a bikini. Well, it's nuanced. I mean, Uriah was, he volunteered. No, he just admits it. In fact, if you read Psalm 51, one to four, how does he start? Take it easy, God. You knew what was up when you elected me. Nope. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Now that is not, um, uh, just happenstance language to blot out sin. Remember from our Leviticus series, this was the atonement for the guilt offering that the priest actually put the blotting of blood on the person or the sacrifice to atone for the sin. Please God, 
please God, I know what is required of me. Blot out my sins. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me, mitzvot. Cleanse me. Cleanse me from sin. Clean, clean me from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I, what? Recognize my rebellion. It haunts me. It keeps me up at night. It haunts me day and night. Against Bathsheba and Bathsheba alone have I sinned. Nope. Against Uriah and Uriah alone have I sinned. Nope. Against Israel and Israel alone have I sinned. Nope. Against you, God, and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. And you will be proved right, God, in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. So what is the minor fall that we see here with David? Well, it's the mud. It's the murkiness of power. And I think that, like, that's a takeaway for us right now. If ever there is a desire to climb the ladder, to climb over top of people, know that God is likely not alongside the ladder with you. The clamoring for power, the mud of, of, of power and victimization, the harm and victimization of somebody who is lesser, seeing a woman as a subordinate or a commodity who can be victimized and objectified, the lies and the de-evolution of evil that we see David head down the slope towards as the person who will save Israel. And yet we see this de-evolution all leading to the correction of Nathan, somebody who is subordinate to David, correcting David and saying, this man is you. You have done what is wrong in the eyes of the Lord. And then sorrow and confession. First of all, David does admit he's confronted with his sin through a trusted brother, colleague. Um, he admits it, right? He, he's made aware and admits his sin. And then uh, he moves towards confession. Let's turn um, to, to verse 10 to 14. This is so fascinating. It's a song too. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Okay, so uh, in your text right there, this is really interesting. Um, what does it say? Does it say, uh, so verse 11, do not banish me from your presence and, and watching at any one of our sites if you're following along and don't take your what? Does anybody not have Holy Spirit? Okay, so this is interesting. This is an English translation that, that's getting us somewhere, but isn't true to the actual text. So, so the actual text, like the Holy Spirit is like something that indwells within us was, would have been a foreign concept back then. The Holy Spirit came for a special anointing, for a special privileged position, for a special period of time, and then left the angel of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord descended upon me and gave me the words to say. Uh, what this is actually saying, this is the Ruach, the wind of God that dwells within a person. When you don't have the wind of God in you, what happens? You die. You enter life with the wind of God in your nostrils and you exit life with the wind of God taken out of your nostrils. So think about the devastation, what David is saying here, what he's processing through. Do not banish me from your presence, all that is good and holy and life-giving. The law of the Lord is perfect, giving life and vitality to the soul. And do not take your breath from me. In other words, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. I know I've done it, but please, please show me something different. Don't take your spirit, your breath 
from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Not when it's convenient, make me, force me to be willing to obey you. God, I'm here for the journey despite the pain. Make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels. Hold on, who's the rebel? David, David, then I will teach your ways to the rebels. There's a lot of people that I've lied to to get here. I'm willing to turn it all around. I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for killing, for shedding blood. O God who saves that God is not the author of death. God is the author of salvation. God breathes life, does not take it away. Forgive me for shedding blood. O God who saves. And then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips. O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. So what do we notice that the psalmist here is, is highlighting? Well, sorrow for sure, but also confession, right? confession. It is not just the admittance of what has been wrong. It's actually the confession of the heart and then uh, leading to repentance, right? You remember what repentance is? Repentance isn't just like, golly gee willikers. Sorry about that, Matt. We're good. I said what I needed to say. God heard me. That's it. No, repentance is an ab, it's a walking term. It is a turning around, repent, turn the other way, Go the other way. Do not dabble. Do not dip your toes in this water. Go the other way. So we notice that the psalmist here is highlighting those things. Honesty, brokenness, the contriteness of heart. For fear of his own death, verse 11, please don't kill me. And then moving through the psalm, what is it that we learned that God wants? Well, we thought we learned it back in Leviticus, right? That God wants sacrifice, that God wants animal sacrifice as a representative symbology for what's happening in the human heart. And yet we see the opposite here. God is not interested in burnt offerings or I would offer it. You're not interested in sacrifices or I would bring it. A broken and contrite spirit, O God, you will not despise or send away is, a, is probably a better rendering. So in this moment, we see the voice, the illumination of the spirit saying to David and the community of faith, I don't care about these offerings. I don't care about these sheep and bulls and lambs that you think have any energy or any life or any meaning in and of themselves. If you are not willing to address your own heart, a broken and contrite spirit, O God, you will not despise. So what does God want? Not ceremony and ritual, but the sacrifice of the heart, a broken, honest, contrite person that is willing to turn the other way. What does God want now and long-term for David? Repair, restoration, and communion. Repair, restoration, and communion. Now, the communion thing is a fascinating one. Read, um, Let's just dip into 16 and 17 again. You do not desire a sacrifice, God, or I would offer it. You do not want to burn offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. So three things that stand out for me there. Repentance, reparation, and restoration. Repentance, honesty with ourselves and with God, that David is honest. He is not PR, spinning, nuancing, creating like accessible language. He is brutally honest with himself and with his God. And he's willing to turn around. Reparation, honesty with ourselves and others. 
that there's, it, this is out now. This is out now. We know what has happened. The community of Israel knows what has happened and we will be for dang sure there uh, correcting you if it ever happens again. Reparation, honesty with ourselves and others. Who has been harmed here? It's not enough to just go to our prayer closet and say, golly gee willikers, God, I did what was wrong, but I'm not gonna go and make it right with this other person. Reparation, honesty with ourselves and others. Who has been harmed here? What do I need to do as soon as possible to make it right or to start the process of making it right? And then restoration. That David and the Israelites, like this is the voice of, uh, of an ancient community saying, uh, we're in it for the long journey. We don't read in the Psalms that the nation of Israel is being like, yo, David, such a putz, man, we're glad we got rid of that guy. No, Jesus is a descendant from the line of the Davidic dynasty that anything in the eyes of God and the heart of God is possible, but it is a long journey of restoration. It does not happen overnight. And that's what we are committing to. This is the impetus of Psalm chapter 51. That's what we're committing to, the long journey of reparation and restoration, but also the power of doing that in a caring, communal, confessional community together called the church, the body of Christ the body of Christ. Think about, again, think about how bonkers this, this section of scripture is. So remember how we started? Uh, this is uh, for the choir director, a Psalm of David for when he assaulted, victimized Bathsheba, also killed her husband and also lied all along the way. That's a nice tune that you hear on the radio. Think about the implications for that. Think about if we were to do that today. Think about like if I was having a coffee uh, with Quincy and he was like, hey man, like I just got to confess something that I did and I really need you to know. And I was like, hold on for a second. Let me just gotta grab a pen and paper and I'm gonna like grab my guitar, write this down so that on Sunday we can sing it, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> and yet this is what this community is willing to do. It's, it's transcending just the vertical relationship with God and moving towards the horizontal relationship with each other. It does us no good to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good to each other. So think about how crazy that is. Remember, this is a journal, either a journal entry of David or uh, something that the community wrote together to help remember and to never do it again. It's the communal confession through song that this is not who we were ever meant to be. It is not who we want to be. And it's not who we're willing to turn into. Lord, convict us. Help us to admit our sin collectively when we identify or see ourselves in the story of David and we all will. Help us to recognize it, admit it, confess it, and then move towards reparation and community together. Lord, help us, restore us to you and to one another. Restore unto us the joy of what it means to be in a salvificus, a saved relationship with the living God and renew a right spirit. Renew your life breath within us so that we can pass that on to others. Brothers and sisters, Imagine if we were a church as individuals who follow Jesus, who had a steady and ongoing diet of self-reflection, confession, reparation, and mutual support. I'm going to say that again. Imagine if we were a church, a collection of individuals trying 
to our darndest to follow Jesus with a steady diet of self-reflection, confession, reparation, and mutual support. This is what the heart of the psalmist is in chapter 51. This is why we're reading a thousand upon thousand year old poem put to music so that we would get to this place, so that we'd be reminded that like, the danger of human ego and power is, is destructive and will lead down a terrible path. But the resurrected hope of Jesus, the, 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 the grace of the spirit and the repair of the soul that God wants to do and continue to do in and through us is alive and well. This is fascinating in the New Testament as well. How many of you have ever read um, uh, James uh, chapter five? Yeah. So James chapter five, 16 is, is like a commonly repeated, often misunderstood section of scripture. So James is a fascinating one. This is a free mini sermon. You don't owe me anything for this. Um, James is almost writing a rebuttal to Paul because they've got, got some beef, beef around like what religion is and what religion isn't. But then James, this is the brother of Jesus, the brother of Jesus, the brother of Jesus. And he says, when you sin, confess your sins to who? One another, one another not to God. Whoa. Oh, hold on here. Why? Well, because our sin is atoned for. The once and for all sacrifice of Jesus has atoned for, has covered over our sin. You and God are good. You and God are good. Now focus on those around you. Confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. healed. This is Psalm 51 recaptured in the telling of James and the confession of of James to to this, this growing new movement of church that is not bent on power but is bent on self-sacrifice, a self-emptying. The law of the Lord revives the soul. We meditate on it day and night. Brothers and sisters, may we be individuals who do this work. May we be the people, uh, the church that does this work together. May we be a spiritual family who's in it for the long journey together. Reparation, self-reflection, restoration and the long journey ahead. That's a church that I want to be a part of. I would, I'm going to invite us to, to sing um, because that's how this like song and psalm uh, was written. I'm going to invite you uh, online or watching from one of our sites to sing as well. If you've never heard it before, um, feel free. It's actually what we just read at the beginning of Psalm 51. I'm going to sing it the first time maybe by myself so that everybody can get their nerves out. And I would encourage you in whatever posture you feel comfortable, if you want to stand or sit or arms open, um, let's embody this, literally embody this together. Create in me a clean heart. Spirit 
within me. Together we all said, 